Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-host, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. Tonight, you are listening to episode 136, and we are covering the top five horror movies of 1970. This is the beginning of our journey for the next 10 months as we cover each year of the 1970s uh, in... I guess it's going to be the last episode of the month as as we've done in the 1990s and 1980s horror movies before. So we'll have three decades completed by October, Frank. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Now, this is... Anybody who listens to the podcast has like known this for a long time. This is, you would say, is your favorite decade for horror movies, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty safe statement. Yeah. Um, so I've always been hesitant, I suppose, about 70s horror movies myself. So far, I'm intrigued, sometimes pleased with what I'm seeing. Uh, but glad I'm, I could, I'm, glad I could please you. And intrigue <laughs> you. <laughs> Because it's not all what I expected it to be, exactly. Uh, And so I probably need more education, honestly, about horror during this time. And I I ask you to do this every so often with these horrorless, which is to kind of like, what's going on as we're moving, I guess, from the 1960s, which I think is what I have in my mind a lot more than the 70s, probably, in terms of the things I'm not too into. What's going on as we transition from the 60s horror like what is 60s horror generally and then what's happening right around the the start of 1970 and and beyond a little bit so 60s horror was really is really the bigger transitional decade between the horror that i think you really dislike which is the traditional bloodless you know almost kind of like watered down and i don't like to say it like that because i don't necessarily agree with that sentiment but i think the general perception is if you watch like horror from the 40s and 50s you're going to see something that's much much milder in terms of its content than what you would see you know that we're used to being children of the 80s in terms of what a horror movie is um so the 60s is a big transitional decade in that um in that respect <clears throat> where you started having especially in the British and Italian um, filmmakers, you start to see a lot more uh, daring when it comes to the horror that they're making. So you'll see more blood, more risque themes, more um, nudity sometimes, um, just a more mature and sort of closer to what we would consider like a modern horror movie happening in that decade but also a lot of stuff that still was callbacks to the movies of the 50s just in you know technicolor or whatever um so as you moved into the 60s you're moving you still have a really large element of um folk horror i guess you would call it so especially from the hammer um uh Pygon, amicus um canon films like all of those studios are still putting out the kind of bodice ripping um adaptations of like uh 
I don't know, like Dracula, Carmelo, whatever. Like there's those kind of stories being told in the early 70s. So all those production companies you just mentioned, are they all British or? Yeah. Okay. And then you have you have American International Pictures, um, who's been making movies since the 50s and really is kind of the like the gold standard um, distribution house for exploitation and grindhouse movies. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a shit. Roger Corman was the primary um, creative force um, for that studio. Corman and um, it was Samuel Arkoff, who you probably are familiar with that name, um, who ran that studio, was like the producer of the Money Man. Mm-hmm. And then um, Corman and Alex Gordon are the creative minds behind it. So they're basically breaking in our current, well, the art in the 80s our generation of directors so um coppola and scorsese and lucas and uh shit who else de palma you know they're giving these act like directors like this their start Mm -hmm. casting people like nicholson uh, just generally building these this generation of directors through low budget horror so the 70s is a lot of them kind of using the loosening uh, social, I don't know, social constraints in order to make more more daring films. And then you see a lot of that stuff coming from the more traditional studios in <clears throat> Britain. And then you see the move from the Italian uh, n- noir movies that become the giallo movies of the 70s and you're getting your introduction to fulci and bava and argento um diodato uh, all these guys are starting to make movies umberto lenzi um through the mid to late 70s and argento active throughout the entire decade and these are guys that are infusing more of a almost like abstract artistry into their filmmaking along with an embracing of an increasingly electronic music, the rise of electronic music with stuff from like Europe, like can and Kraftwerk and Faust and whatever. And so they're influenced by that. So you start to get scores that are more what you consider those traditional eighties synth, you know, heavy scores, but they're doing it with just inventiveness and, kind of building the horror score something more than just screechy violins and you know low woodwinds or whatever mm-hmm. um now these the the, the giallo kind of subgenre or whatever like watching something on it last night it's like they started off more as like crime pictures kind of sure. and then were was this generation of directors the ones that started to infuse more of the kind of like like horror aspect into the crime thriller yeah see i would argue it, it starts with bava a lot okay. in the late 60s <clears throat> where he's making movies that are kind of the prototype to the stalker slasher genre mm-hmm. um and in particular he makes a movie uh in this year uh twitch of the death nerve or bay of blood whichever version of it you see that's really kind of the prototype for everything that comes after it in regards to like Friday the 13th and Halloween 
just in the way that he approached it, and any like whatever the prowler there's so many slasher movies from the 70s and 80s but he approaches it in a way that's kind of soaked in blood and also is they're starting to look at i guess kinks and perversions and it's really wrong-headed when you look at it from a modern perspective but forcing this and maybe this is an influence from things like peeping tom and psycho but using this mild rudimentary psychology to explain why people are doing things um and you you know you see that like i said like the giallo you'll see it a lot more throughout the 70s because that becomes a thing is like oh well this guy was abused by his mother as a child or this guy was abandoned or something and they use that as being the argento is really big for that that that's this is the reason why these people are committing these crimes or Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about a movie tonight <clears throat> um early i actually argento's first movie um where he uses that kind of like backwards armchair psychology to sort of build his story around so um real quick let me ask you because i know in i think what is it 1980 like that first year maybe 81 when we were doing the 80s a couple years ago inferno was on one of those lists which so is this happening in seclusion with the Giallo movies, like in Italy, largely with like, how much is that influencing what we're starting, what what we'll see in the seventies or is that, does it take until the eighties for it to start influencing more? Now you, you, you see that influence in the U S in the eighties, at least um, the British were still mostly concerned with telling, even when they were setting movies in the modern day, it was still, kind of like the old dark house model or it was still kind of like monster movies that they were making um there still is a very strong connection in european film especially to the gothic style of filmmaking and you know storytelling whereas the american directors so you know you see you know friday the 13th halloween texas chainsaw massacre um even in the exorcist that these american directors are more embracing that kind of modern take on like what horror can be as opposed to being stuck you know in the castles and moors of whatever transylvania in the 1700s so but the thing with those movies too is that they were still taking kind of a modern sensibility so you start to see a little bit more again like eroticism you get to see a little more analogy to the modern day in terms of um the acceptance of outsiders in society and people being viewed as evil just because they're different in terms of their sexuality or religion um but they had to hide it a little more because obviously it's a lot a lot more uptight in britain right and that uh, that uptightness is what leads to the video nasties controversies in the 1980s of um basically a filmed obscenity <clears throat> if a movie was deemed obscene by the censors in britain in the 80s um you know there's actual legal ramifications that come with that so i think in the 70s i think those filmmakers were aware that they couldn't be too on the nose about what they were filming right so a movie about dracula in britain in 1971 is a lot more palpable than um, a serial killer in Britain in 1981. Right. 
Um, and and I, I just have to, I guess I have to assume like they're more hamstrung because they actually shifted towards conservatism a little bit earlier than we did, like in the seventies, like politically. Well, sure. Um, I mean, you have the lead up to the rise of like Margaret Thatcher and right, right. Um, obscenity laws and the moral, um, basically a return to the days that like Oscar Wilde lived in, you know, where stuff like homosexuality is like a listed crime in, um, in Britain in the early eighties. Um, and there's a lot of, yeah, it's, it's, it's very puritanical almost in the sense Mm -hmm. that I kind of like was mirrored over here by the religious right. But at that point, our country was a little more open-minded and it was more difficult to, I don't know, maybe not even open-minded, but, um, definitely more of a diverse, population i think certainly not as much as much censorship over here it seems um considering the kind of stuff they let go in the 80s yeah as much as people tried though you know there was tons of efforts to have stuff banned and then i mean this is completely far off the topic of 70s horror yeah yeah. you have the rise of stuff like tipper gore and um, music censorship and film censorship and eventually porn in the mid 80s being big right you know right yeah yeah so in the early 70s, you're still kind of riding through that wave of the summer of love aspect of things where <clears throat> there still is a more more or less openly liberal mindset towards art and the way things are being filmed. And there's some movies we're going to talk about in the next few years that really push that boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, like sort of fall victim to those old old school morals. Um, but people were generally a little more open and a lot of these movies aren't being shown anywhere where anyone is seeing them that matters i guess if that makes sense so they're going into you know single double screen um box theaters grindhouse theaters whatever so a lot of the more extreme stuff doesn't really gain notoriety until the rise of vhs where it's Mm. immediately available to view by anyone you know, it's got a couple of dollars to rent it. So here you see a lot of innovation in this decade. And we're going to talk about five movies that I think are all pretty different in their approach to filmmaking um, that have a lasting impact going forward on, you know, just the future of horror and the way that people saw that they could kind of push the boundary of what an acceptable movie was um, which is why another reason why i love the 70s so much because you just see people that are willing to just just make something that they want to make and kind of put like put themselves out more in terms of maybe like risking censorship or risking um public like decryment or whatever but again like who was watching it except for people that actually really wanted to watch those movies so i don't know i love the decade though and i think that it's the combination of the film style like the filmmaking style and also the film stock that's being used because this is really the last full decade where maybe everything is shot on film you don't really have anything that's like video shot or you know, everything sort of has a semi-professional appeal to it. Sure. Um, and where a lot of things, like a lot of tropes and innovations are made 
that will continue on throughout our entire lives in terms of watching horror um, to establish sort of those unspoken rules of, you know, what, what horror is supposed to be or what makes a slasher movie or a monster movie or a bodice ripper or whatever. I mean, there's so many, so many great genres and represented by some of the greatest actors that worked consistently in horror throughout their careers. And so we'll talk about them as we go through the, um, the decades. I tried to make sure that everybody that I think is super important um, in the horror genre is represented in this, um, whatever 50 films that we're going to talk about between now and October. Nice. Um, <clears throat> okay. You want to get started on? Yeah. So there's two movies <clears throat> that I thought about putting on the list. Uh, yeah. um, one I didn't put on the list because we've already talked about it. And one I didn't put on the list because I don't really know how to talk about. So the first movie was Valerie and her week of wonders, which is one of my favorite uh, um, more artsy or abstract horror movies um really fantastic visuals uh it, it's been a, a i guess a couple of years since we talked about this movie i think it was like i think it was actually it just feels like it's covid time i think it was last october on um, this past october if i remember correctly do you know what the list was do you remember i was i'm trying to look it up now yeah um but i'll figure it out <clears throat> but anyway so a movie that i really love a lot then there's a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie um, from this month called The Wizard of Gore. I don't know how familiar we are with um, Gordon Lewis, if you know anything about him at all. Um, but he's probably in the broadest sense, the father of the modern splatter film. Um, so movies like this, uh, 2000 maniacs bucket of blood the gruesome twosome i mean he has these movies that you watch them today and they're very sanitized in a lot of ways or there's um there's not really much to them where you're like oh this is disgusting or i can't believe i'm watching this because you know he's not he didn't really have a lot to work with like you're working with really primitive special effects um but him along with Fulci are the two people that really kind of push the idea that you could show copious amounts of blood and of people being dismembered or being brutally killed on screen as opposed to off screen where there's nothing left to your imagination like you know I mean one of your complaints about one of my favorite Fulci movies um City of the Dead or Gates of Hell whatever you want whatever whatever cut you want to call it you know, of like people like puking their guts out or having like their heart ripped out from their chest. I mean, these, this is something that became the driving force behind horror, or at least a subset of horror for a long time. And Gordon Lewis is, at least on the English speaking side, like the dude that sort of introduced that to um, horror movies. But on the other side of that, I'm not really super interested in talking about Herschel Gordon Lewis, like at length. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, his movies are very, American International made quickie like shocker movies, but there's always some artistry behind them. Herschel Gordon Lewis, there's not a whole lot of artistry behind it. It's really just, it all feels cheap. It feels really dirty. Like, I think you would really hate watching his movies. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them, but 
No, um, some of just, the famous ones. So there's Blood Feasts is probably the most famous. Or um, a bucket of blood. Um, I've heard of these movies, but I've never seen it. Uh, two thousand maniacs. Color me blood red. Gruesome mm-hmm. twosome. Um, this year is the Wizard of Gore. Um, the Gore Gore Girls, and then he doesn't make movies for a long time. And then when there's that kind of sort of revitalization of the horror genre in the late nineties. He came back and filmed a sequel to um, uh, 2000 Maniacs. Hmm. Or no, to Blood Feast, Blood Feast. Somebody else did a 2000 Maniacs sequel. Starring uh, Robert England, of all people. So. Hmm. But um, it's just one of the... It's, it's, it's one of those things where if you're really interested in the history of especially slasher movies and the over-the-top, like almost like Brand Gugnoll, um style horror movies that it's it's pretty important to learn about gordon lewis and watch his movies but i just to me that i just don't really have anything to say about it aside from the like three minutes there that i just talked about so gotcha so <clears throat> i was the one that was fucked up on covid time like you're you're correct it was um 2020 october 2020 that we talked about valerie and weaker wonders it was uh episode 86 the top five avant-garde horror movies uh, mm. so um if anybody's interested to hear about that yeah it's really great it's typically available different places to watch for free um or through a subscription so yeah i love it anyway yeah like right now it looks like um i don't believe it's up on shutter right now having just looked at shutter recently but um it's Is it on criterion maybe um that that i'm not sure um i don't have my ipad with me to look real quick but at least easily um but yeah it's available to rent for 2.99 though pretty much everywhere um all right so yeah um you ready to get started with the list then let's do it all right so Number five on your list is Equinox, directed by Jack Woods. It stars Edward Connell, Barbara Hewitt, Frank Boner, Bonner, and um, Robin Christopher. It has a 33% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 28% from audiences. Uh, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, why it's on the list? Yeah, so before I start say, talking about this movie, one thing I wanted to say previously was this is another one of those lists where I didn't necessarily put it in order of the best movies or worst to best or least important to most important. Cause I think all of these movies have their own special place in the history of horror. Um, I mostly put it in the list in order of how much did I enjoy watching this movie this time, you know, over the past few weeks, like getting prepared for this podcast. Um, so Equinox is, um, kind of a labor of love um almost fan project of uh the guy um jack woods who was just this dude that was super into harryhausen and stop motion animation and just wanted to make a film um it tells the story of these four kids kids quote unquote because they're supposed to be college students but they look like they're like 50 years <laughs> old the two dudes yeah um, who go on a picnic in the, I guess it's the Hollywood Hills or somewhere in California um, and basically run afoul of 
uh, Mr. Um, Asmodeus, who is a park ranger, but is also the devil. Uh, he's trying to find this book of ancient evil that the kids stumble upon that their professor had found and had used to conjure these monsters that ended up killing them. Um, so Asmodeus is trying to basically trick them into giving him the book and they're trying to get away from him. Um, there's a giant like stop motion, I don't know, lizard ape man monster. Um, and then just this weird like giant caveman dude that Asmodeus sends after him. Um, a lot of really primitive, even maybe at the time, special effects like filter changing and stuffed under the film and exposure techniques to make it look like <clears throat> there's some mystical crazy crap going on. Um, so ultimately, the kids end up succumbing one by one to Osmodius. Um, except for the one who manages to get away and then gets hit by a car that's driving him itself and ends up going in the hospital where the doctors think that he's crazy. Uh, he has a cross that he's wearing. So to keep, you know, the forces of evil away, but they take it away from him because again, they think he's nuts. And then ultimately his dead girlfriend gets sent back to kill him. So it's a, I guess, a more bleak ending. Uh, pretty standard. It honestly, when you watch this movie, it feels like something from the late fifties, early sixties, just in the yeah. way that it's shot. Um, it's got a very almost archaic feel to it, especially my, from. It, I wrote down in my notes. It reminds me of like a early Doctor Who, like the, the old black and white Doctor Who BBC production style in some ways. Much more yeah, interesting filmmaking, but in production terms, like yeah, how it looks. Sure, and that's fair, and. A lot of that stuff was also influenced by just horror movies and the way that horror and sci-fi was filmed in the the 50s and 60s. So there's, it's almost like my answer to, you know, I'll use the same thing that people said about porn. Like, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. Right. Like, you, you know a movie that's filmed in that style as soon as you see it, just because of the way that it looks and the way that the actors are directed and the way the dialogue is written. Um, but in this case, it's really charming, I think. And when you look at Jack Woods and the amount of effort that he put into, you know, basically on his own and with his own money and just people that he knew, like created this pretty impressive low budget horror film. That's an homage to, you know, stuff like, like I said, like Harryhausen and, the movies from the 50s and 60s that were done with stop motion animation and without the benefit of more modern effects um and i think it's it's just kind of a it, it's a goofy movie but it's a lot of fun to watch especially if you appreciate true like independent filmmaking i think which is what this movie is um and the fact that you know it sort of stands the test of time in terms of being able to watch it as an artifact from that time period and a lot of the stop motion animation in it is amazing considering that you know it's like he was um expertly trained or anything and really i think the biggest reason that this movie is super important is because it was a um, partial inspiration for evil dead 
-hmm. in the sense that um shit i can't remember his name the guy that was the cinematographer for evil dead saw this movie and loved it when he was young and it sort of inspired him to want to make movies and he you know thought for years like i kind of want to make a movie that's like this and so if you look at something like evil dead it's a very similar idea of you know the kids go into the woods and they run afoul of an evil force and then they're trying to combat the evil force but it's too much for them and there's a a terrible book that exists you know so there's even that lovecraftian element to equinox of this almost cosmic horror um the guy that plays um mr mr osmodeus or osmodeus however they say it um has the friggin craziest like super thick eyebrows and just looks that's jack woods isn't it yeah 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 um it's just it's 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 really funny the way that he's filmed and there's again there's a charm to it so it's not like you're not mocking the movie as you're watching it necessarily, but you also don't take it hundred percent seriously. So it's just fun to watch. Yeah. I definitely saw early on there. There's some really interesting camera work in this. It's almost like people that just had, it's almost feels like people that just had to figure some things out for themselves and then ended up doing slightly innovative, innovative things at times. It felt like to me like there, that, there's a shot early on in this movie where the camera is moving fairly quickly close to the ground. And it really, it made me think of uh, evil dead in terms of like how Raimi does, you know, that whatever that shot's called, like when they're going through the woods and stuff like that. And there's some, definitely some odd angles at times but it actually creates a lot more interest in the film i thought it was a really interesting story to start and i thought it was an interesting story to end on i thought like as it goes along at at times it was kind of dull um but i definitely thought there were some really fascinating camera work and some things that they did that uh were different enough that it made it interesting to actually watch yeah, and it, I mean, it has a Twilight zone feel to it in mm-hmm. some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot, I think the worst, like, the thing that probably made it dull is the acting, if anything. Other than sure. that, I thought it was a pretty interesting story <clears throat> that I hadn't necessarily seen before, and and it, and it had some, some unique stuff going on with it, so. Yeah, so um, Dennis Mirren, who did a lot of the stop motion animation, actually, I think the original idea came from him hmm. um he would end up going on to work with a lot of you know like lucas and spielberg and a bunch of the hmm. modern studios in terms of like creating effects and whatnot so hmm. um i know that i'm pretty sure uh, phil Tippett, if you're familiar with that name i think he was influenced by this movie he's really the guy that um i don't know like the the father of modern practical effects almost okay um Tippett's the guy that designed things like the tauntaun and the rancor Mm. and um a lot of the animatronics and stop motion stuff in star wars and okay um he designed ed209 from Mm. robocop phil Tippett. Mm. so there was a lot of people that would see movies like this you know 
and be inspired that they could do it too and so there's there's just a lot of value in this movie and sure especially when you consider how grim and um i don't know if overbearing is the right word but just like really in your face a lot of movies will become in the 70s i thought starting it with this movie that's just kind of nice and sort of a throwback to earlier times is a a good way to start it and it's just it's worth watching and the first time you see it i think you'll be really charmed by just the way it looks and the earnestness of the production of it so and i think it's available on um hbo max uh right now is as part of their tcm collection because it's part of the criterion collection yeah criterion about mm, 15 years ago maybe a little less than that decided just to put out a bunch of 50s 60s and 70s horror um so you got a lot of stuff with like lugosi and there's some sci-fi horror from the 60s and uh some of the first uses of again like that pseudo psychology um peeping tom is on criterion so they they definitely look at what's more of like the history of horror and try and capture that which i guess is what their role is basically is you know chroniclers of film history so but yeah equinox is good it's like what an hour and it's 82 minutes yes yeah, hour and 20 minutes so it's yeah. it's it's an easy watch and it's worth watching yeah um eight thousand dollars that's crazy that's all all they made it on oh all right um well that was probably film too honestly like buying film stock and i'm sure yeah getting it developed i mean that's oh i thought it was interesting to note too ed begley jr was uh work camera on this i don't know if you noticed that in the credits when i didn't get that that's That's pretty funny yeah um so film stock was that was probably the most expensive thing sorry you were saying i would i would imagine i don't know i mean that's one of the benefits to modern film is that um anybody with a camera can make a movie now you know you don't have to necessarily have anything developed or expensive editing tools to you know cut your film together you can download free stuff from the internet and use your camera and make a movie that would have cost you know almost probably been like prohibitive at one point but now as long as you've got the wherewithal like you can pretty much do it for free so that's one of the things that makes these older movies so charming i think is the idea that it couldn't happen like you know somebody really had to invest and put their time and their money and their effort into doing it it wasn't just like an easy process so i think you really see that labor of love element come through in a lot of these movies and is this this is the only black and white movie in the 70s that you have on a list right i think equinox isn't black and white that's just color this one? Yeah. I mean there's some there's some aspects of it that are filmed in black and white, but for the most part that movie's color. Hmm. Okay. I've already forgotten it then. Oh um, nice. I mean I, I remember what happens in the movie. No, that's interesting. I mean, we had this problem about close to three years ago. Do you remember like me like thinking something was in black and white when it was in color? Do you remember this? Maybe you're the colorblind one. <laughs> um I've always argued it's not me; it's everyone else. So this is a, <laughs> maybe this is proof of that. Yeah, well, there's well, added to the list. You probably think of it in black and white because there's a lot of stuff that's filmed with just a, um, a color filter over it, so it'll be like orange or yellow or blue or something. Uh, but 
it feels like it feel but whatever movie it was that we were talking about and it was right around this time period too like late 60s and stuff like that it's like it feels black and white like to me i think also a lot of the still production stills and stuff like that are also black and white like the well so the movie was filmed in two parts so there's the fred Mirren part which is um the guy that originally had the idea and did a lot of the stop motion Mm -hmm. and so i think a lot of that was done with with color filters but then when um what's his name went back and and filmed the rest of the movie basically uh, those parts are definitely in color so that's the like the interactions with um osmodius and the stuff in the hospital at the end and yeah i'm 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 watching part of it now yeah yeah you're you're right i mean i'm yeah some of that's definitely color filters there i'm just watching some clips of it here yeah it feels very classical to me um all right All right. So number four on your list is Vampire Lovers, just directed by Roy War Baker, who we've talked a lot about in his different movies, it feels like. It stars Peter Cushing, Ingrid Pitt, George Cole, and Madeline Smith. It has a 71% from critics and a 60% from audiences. You want to tell us a little about this and why it's on your list? So this is um, one of the biggest subgenres of the 70s and 80s is the sort of erotic lesbian vampire movie um and all these movies that are sort of loosely based on or directly based on um sheridan lefanu's uh, carmilla which was not overtly was not overtly is not the right was not stated as being you know an lgbtq story at the time but was often translated as that just because of the interactions between Carmilla and the female protagonist um so this is one of the first examples of a real adaptation of that story um, which if you're not familiar with Carmilla it's the story of a uh, wealthy landowner who takes in this wayward woman who immediately befriends the landowner's young daughter um, the attraction between the two becomes much more erotic, but it's because Carmilla is a vampire and is draining the life from the young girl. Hmm. Uh, so eventually this is found out and then Carmilla is, you know, destroyed. It's <clears throat> one of the older vampire stories ever. I think that it is only predated by um, Orlock and Stoker's vampire, maybe. Hmm not a huge knowledgeable expert on whatever vampire literature but i i think that might be true it, it predates uh stoker actually oh okay yeah by about 25 years um so it's again yeah no expert but uh this movie is done in the style that i think that you're kind of not a huge fan of which is the really old seeming it, it takes place in pre-modern times. So I think that Carmilla probably takes place in like the I don't know, 15 or 1600s, my guess. Um, Ingrid Pitt plays uh, Mirkala Carmilla, um, the titular vampire lover um, who uses her supernatural powers and vampirism to basically 
uh, kill this one girl uh, whose father, um, played by Peter Cushing, goes to seek vengeance against or find out like what happened to his daughter as Carmilla moves on to the next family, um, where she again sort of ensorcels everybody in the house in an effort to drain the life from the young girl. Um, she's caught. There's a guy who's basically Van Helsing, but um, the father of another young girl that had been murdered who has learned how to effectively kill vampires who sort of helps uh, Cushing and the new family to find her, her grave and stake her and basically save the young girl from being turned into a vampire. Um, it's notable for being number one for not really shying away from the lesbian aspect mm -hmm. of the character. Although in comparison to the modern times, it sort of paints lesbianism or homosexuality as monstrous and something evil basically, uh, but still not very common, especially in mainstream movies to see any sort of homosexuality approached in any manner whatsoever. Um, Ingrid Pitt is one of the more iconic uh, film horror like B goddesses of the pre 80s. Um, incredibly beautiful woman. Uh, there's some really, really attractive ladies in this movie and um, very British in the way that it looks. Um, and just, I mean, I think it's just an enjoyable movie to watch. I love, I'm always a sucker for. Like, again, this is another American international picture. Uh, so exploitation at its core, but there's a lot of artistry to it. Uh, there's a scene early on where the vampire hunter is stalking a vampire as it leaves its um, its tomb for the night to go find victims. And this really interesting idea that if you steal a vampire shroud, that the vampire can't return to its coffin. So he finds the shroud and steals it and then uses that to lure the vampire to him. And he almost loses heart because the vampire reveals itself to be this beautiful, buxom, like blonde woman. Um, but he ends up beheading the vampire and killing it. And it's just little things like that. Like the way that the vampire's filmed is just kind of like wandering around town with the shroud looking for victims is really cool. Um, I, don't know, I just I, I really enjoy like the look and tone and feel of this movie and it's something movie that I watched a lot when I was when I was younger um, that I had seen in a cut version originally on TV and it wasn't until years later that I was able to find a uncut VHS version with the um, the nudity in it and some of the more like risque themes and tech so um, I think it's you know it's fun and it's again it's a nice juxtaposition with like maybe the next two movies where you are dealing with a more traditionalist theme in terms of the vampire risen from the grave type thing and um, some slight psychology in the sense of, again, from like an LGBTQ perspective, what is Carmilla? You know what I mean? Like she's this creature that is driven by passion and, basically has to live in the shadows and live outside of society and genuinely seems to be in love with this young girl that she's trying to turn into a vampire and seduce and take back to her castle with her. So 
maybe sort of wrongheaded ultimately in its approach from a modern perspective, but still a more interesting take on, you know, kind of a, what at the time would have been an outsider perspective um, on sexuality and whatever. So, yeah, I thought it was fairly liberal for the time myself. I think you're right. Ultimately wrongheaded, but I mean, I, I felt there was at times some sympathy. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was definitely mere, like masking itself as some, at least acceptance of a lesbian lifestyle well because so there's a character in it that's um madame pompadou i think is her name uh she's a young governess that looks after the daughter of this one wealthy baron um the one that the second one that carmilla sort of ensorcels who's quite obviously a lesbian and who embraces you know the idea of having a relationship with Carmilla, but Carmilla is just using her to basically get to the daughter. Um, but still interesting that you would actually depict in a, like to your point, like a somewhat sympathetic light, you know, this, um, this gay character on film. So, yeah, but they had to hide behind the titillation of showing a bunch of nudity. So you sure. can't really tell a story without making it seem like you're not telling the story to, you know, I guess hiding in plain sight and, in about six months, we're going to talk about six or seven months. We're going to talk about a movie that I think is the best example of that um, in terms of sort of addressing things that weren't necessarily open to be talked about in, you know, the contemporaneous world of the 1970s, but painting it in a light where it's exploitation. So it sort of escapes notice. Um, and this is an early example of that too. So, yeah, I mean, it feels like that's kind of, it's kind of like the history of horror in a lot of ways like that you have to even when you're trying to do the right thing whether it's supporting female causes or supporting lgbtq or whatever it is that you're doing that you still have to add titillation and you have to kind of exploit female actresses a lot of times with tna in order to kind of cover it up and mask it and get people into the theater to watch it you or, know um, i mean you look at something like night of the living dead you know which is a few years before this and romero is uh, definitely making a movie that's social commentary mm -hmm. but hiding it behind zombies so that sure. no one who would be upset about that is gonna raise any kind of fuss over it because oh it's just a cheap horror movie right. so right um but yeah but it is interesting that there's so much female exploitation in so many horror movies and it goes far beyond this time period but a lot of them are also supporting women in terms of story or you know uh subtext um right. and it's, it's 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 an interesting conundrum um i really like I, I know that you i understand why you thought i wouldn't like this movie i really liked it overall and i think a lot of it comes from roy, roy ward baker uh, as the director I, I tend to like a lot of his stuff and i think he's just a very competent classical director who knows how to tell a story and i don't know who if he often worked with the same editor or something but it just always feels like his movies kind of flow from one scene to another and logically tell a story yeah and he's also really good in terms of like the 
like his just filmmaking in general where it's like he's not the most fancy guy in the world but he always seems to have the camera in the right place and is getting the core of the action that needs to be captured for you to be invested and i i just think he's a really competent director and i always enjoy his movies for some reason and i don't know why that is but so one of the things that i love the most about british horror and it, it, it's interesting you bring that up is that typically even in the cheapest production you still have somebody who's a brilliant classically trained actor or just an incredibly talented craftsman at film behind the camera you know so in this movie and it's not even a starring role but one of the greatest british actors of the 70s and 80s and peter cushing in this movie you know what i mean and that's Mm -hmm. typically you had a good chance of having him uh price or christopher lee show up in a movie and all three of those dudes are going to elevate your production just by their presence um and to your point like roy ward baker he's a guy that's got just a real easy presence behind the camera he knows how to tell a story you know through a visual narrative while still telling a strong you know like actual narrative and um yeah his movies tend to be eminently watchable and there's a bunch of people like that um that we'll talk about throughout the 70s but this is the thing again is like these are especially from a british perspective just people that were making a buck but still invested so much actual effort and talent into the making of the movies they were making that it in some ways just sort of like classes up any production um this movie would be followed by two other films in quick succession so it's lust for a vampire and twins of evil if i'm not mistaken um and also both in essence kind of it's called the carnstein trilogy so carmilla is the scion of the carnstein family which is this family of vampires that have like plagued the countryside for um centuries so lust for a vampire which is next is sort of the continuation of the carnstein story and then Twins of Evil is, I think, a prequel to this movie with the Carnstein's. Um, so the Carnstein's were inter- American internationals, like whatever Dracula equivalent um, during this time period. Uh, Twins of Evil is a really good movie too. So if you ever get the chance to watch it, I don't know if it's free anywhere. Lust for a Vampire is good too, but to me, it's like almost sort of more of the same as here, but twins of evil is pretty good so quickly i just saw that uh roy ward baker directed quarter mass in the pit mm. um yeah i love that movie why why do i know that like why do i know the quarter mass stuff like to some degree there was something that you had me watch in the past few months and i as researching it i came across all the quarter mass stuff um hmm. It was a was BB, it the, BBC like was it the stone tapes that made yes you? the stone tape yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that's it that's so what it is. there's it actually might be quartermass in the pit or it might be one of the like the X or whatever um based around like the same I guess actual event okay. uh, quartermass in the pit is more about what is it? I guess they find some alien object that turns people into monsters or zombies if i remember correctly okay. I, I don't know it's, it's been a long time since i've seen the quartermass stuff but okay um those are again those are america i, I think they're all american international 
um just really enjoyable movies uh okay you know quartermass is sort of the prototypical doctor who almost so the guy that's a a scientist that investigates the unknown and the okay the supernatural that makes sense um yeah i've heard carpenter recently talk about that as well quartermass of being inspired by some of that stuff it was um weirdly influential in the not weirdly, I don't know, but in the 60s and 70s, and yeah. you see a lot of things. I've tried to figure out a way that we could do some quartermass stuff, but I don't know like what that list is. So right. I just keep looking for another way to put it on. <laughs> sure. Um, maybe it's a special episode one day. Who knows? <clears throat> All right. Oh, so yeah. Um this is one of the first movies and not the last of this decade that we're gonna talk about. That is a American International and Hammer co-production too. I forgot to mention that. So, mm. um, Hammer is the actual production studio. American International is the releasing and distribute dis- distribution company. So it's um, a partnership that'll last throughout the next ten ish plus years. Mm. Okay. Cool. All right. So number three on your list is Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. It stars tony masanti Susie kendall and ava renzi has a 93 percent from critics and an 80 percent from audiences so and you said earlier this is argento's first movie so you want to tell yep. us a little bit about this and um why it's on the list here so let's talk a little bit first and i've already kind of mentioned this about sort of the kind of an unspoken thing about exploitation movies from the late 60s through the 70s which is using modern psychiatry in a way to titillate or lazily explain something in your movie um and this is what giallo and slasher movies in the the 70s and into the 80s were sort of notorious for is kind of like the um the Norman Bates explanation at the end of Psycho, which is taking kind of bits and pieces from, you know, modern uh, psychiatric theory and crafting them to say like, well, that's why this person was out killing people. Um, And a lot of ways comes off as really sort of like a crass examination of why, like the really complex issues of, you know, psychosis and psychiatry in general. Um, so the narrative of this movie is that there's somebody murdering people, um, in Italy and this guy who's an American or British, uh, journalist sort of gets blamed for it because he sees, um, he saves a woman from getting murdered in this art gallery late at night one night. Um, and he gets kind of wrapped into the investigation, which is one of the funniest tropes of friggin' like horror movies from the seventies and eighties which is random dude that just happened to see something all of a sudden becomes like key investigator in a a murder investigation. Um, And the police are just like, yeah, man, come on, we could use your help. Or like, Hey, don't go getting yourself killed when you're out there investigating that. Um, So multiple people get murdered like around this guy and he's trying to figure out what's causing this to happen. Um, And eventually the rationale for it is that, um, the person is driven by this this piece of art which is a um artistic depiction of 
an actual attack that happened in some park in Italy, uh, not not in real life, but in the context of the movie, um, where a woman was attacked, and the woman that was attacked happens to be the wife of this guy that owns the gallery, and was the woman that was attacked in the beginning of the movie, and there's all these jumps in logic about like, oh well, it could be this person and this person, and um, they eventually find out that if they listen to the tapes, they can hear the cry of this particular bird uh, who has these glass-like wings, which is the titular bird with crystal plumage, and they trace it back to this one zoo in Italy, and it happens to be outside the window of the um, art gallery owner, and so they're like, oh, well, it's this guy, and then he gets pushed to his death, and they think everything's solved, but then it turns out it was his wife because his wife was the actual victim of that assault that was memorialized in the picture, and it broke her mind, and she has some kind of psychotic ptsd and is out murdering people um but they end up getting her in the end so it's it's pretty standard giallo fare honestly uh, in terms of the red herrings and the um, subplots that don't really go anywhere or the um just the whole like masked killer you're seeing things from the killer's perspective style of filmmaking um which argento would eventually you know sort of perfect um you see a lot of early argento things here like his use of shadow and his use of light to frame things in a film um this movie's probably a little too dark i think and i don't know if that's the cut or the remaster that i watched or just you know indicative of maybe a lack of resources at the time but um it, it can come off as a little too dark at times in the action um and the dialogue is stilted you know the dubbing is awful but one of the most important figures in modern horror, Argento, you know, to see his start and see really just how confident and assured he was as a director, even from the beginning and sort of understood hmm. the right way to film sort of developing his own visual style of how do I film someone being stabbed or slashed or, you know, garroted or whatever. And he's kind of learning it here. Um, and pushing the boundaries of good taste in terms of what you can show on film, you know, in relation to like the actual murders themselves. So um, not one of my favorite Argento movies. Like I like bird with crystal plumage well enough, but obviously I'm much more into the supernatural movies later. Sure. And the really like there's a movie we'll talk about in a couple months. Um, one of Argento's follow-ups to this, that's just by far the superior film. Um, but a really good place to see like the beginning of this man and, you know, sort of get a glimpse of what's to come in terms of his filmmaking style. Yeah, so, and this is why I was asking you this earlier. This is, so the Giallo was more of a crime thriller at some point, and that's more what this is, more than anything, except for he's made it more horrific by stylizing the kills and being more graphic with the kills, right? That's the horror aspect of this, I suppose, compared right. to, traditional giallo okay this is my favorite movie out of the five here um the uh, out of these five when i was watching this a lot of it just has to do with argento's direction of it like you said i think it's it's hokey at times like with the dub and some of the dialogue and those kind of things i think it's very it's it's because it's not supernatural it actually like is 
even more so than some of the later stuff we watched of his to me it's very logical this movie maybe absurd but it's still very logical and like you know the way it tells the story and stuff like that i i actually like this maybe because the kills weren't so overdone because we've talked about this before with some of my problems with argento i think he's a fantastic director and you see a lot of that here i think his shot choice i think the color palette of the movie like you know i think i i love all that stuff it's 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 looks so good like um at least the copy i saw on youtube looked really good yeah it's a really good copy and um but i think the fact that he hasn't mastered yet all of these really intense minutes long graphic kills to the point where he's like experimenting like with all these different types of like how can i kill this person and how can i make this more brutal um i agree with you that i like the supernatural stuff more than this kind of like traditional fare i guess but i actually like that i'm not like put off in any way by the kills as much in this um and by put off i don't mean i'm not squeamish like i'm not a squeamish person in that way i just think it's overdone like later on it's almost like how can i top myself and um well in a lot of ways he's really creating um right creating like his own style of filmmaking yeah and that makes sense i mean but I, I really like the, 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 the subdued nature of this um, a little bit more. And I just think he's a fantastic director, like despite how I feel sometimes about some of his movies, I, I think he's a, an amazing director. So I really enjoyed this movie overall, like watching it, um, mainly because it's pretty to look at. <laughs> yes. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that they're filming on um, – practical sets like they're filming in real locations mm. um so you have that element of like the old world italian like architecture mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. colors um do you have a pen and paper uh, i do all right i'm gonna give you some movies then okay this would be this is like uh if you like that watch this okay um right. uh blood and black lace okay uh black belly of the tarantula that sounds like a movie I'd hate, but okay. Um, you won't. You'll oh. enjoy it. Okay. Um, All the Colors of the Night. Uh-huh. And then um, Don't Torture a Duckling. I have a feeling. Don't, don't, don't Torture a Duckling is early Fulci. Um, but just 100% Giallo. It's, and there's nothing supernatural about it, so. Okay. Um, all of those movies kind of fit in a similar theme to this, which is they're all very straight up crime movies. Mm-hmm. Like they're very traditional giallo because a lot of stuff that we're going to watch in this this decade, just because of my personal preference, is going to have a super supernatural bent to it, or um, is going to delve into like the weird horror uh, genre. Um, but those movies, I think, I, I think you'll enjoy because they end up being more like just stylized crime movies, really. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely. And I think they're all free somewhere. I'm sure. Uh, that 
one of the one of the odd benefits of the 70s horror is a lot of these things are actually available on youtube for free so uh when you're when you're looking for these um you get the benefit of the fact that if they're out of print or um there's no real interest in it that nobody in america probably owns the rights which means that we can basically watch them for free whenever we want sure and a lot of them um even if they do have a release and are somewhere um oh don't torture duckling is on tubi right now for free it is yeah Um, i always get that and children shouldn't play with dead things confused the the two of them because of i don't know the long title the long title um it's probably the contraction like for some reason i get the two of them confused and it looks like they both come out in the same year, so there's something about it confuses me. Um, yeah, children shouldn't play with dead things. Is 100 a supernatural zombie horror movie, and right. yeah. don't torture a duckling. It's just weird psycho horror. So right. So yeah. So uh, yeah, I there was something else I wanted to say about Argento here. I'm. It's going to be weird because it's like I, I, as much as I like this, it's like I, I do. You're right. I do like a supernatural stuff more. I still think it should. Like I still think he's a, even when he does stuff that's not supernatural. Because what, what was it that we talked about a couple years ago on the podcast? That's Argento. That's a that's that goes kind of backwards to this. Uh, Tanabre. Um, Maybe it was Tanabre. That's 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 just kind of like that's the one with uh, Dario Nicolini um it ends up being the killer yes the yeah. guy who's yep, yep. the american author yeah and and that's much more in line with this to me than it than it is any of his like supernatural stuff necessarily have you watched um well i don't want to spoil anything but right yeah no have you I watched haven't. that movie yet okay no. all right well you're, you're you're gonna love that movie then okay um so that i i still think that as a and again, I mean, it's like dub and stuff like that. I, I still think the movies, the, the writing of the movies sometimes are his non-supernatural ones are really clunky. <laughs> um, like just from like a dialogue standpoint. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Like it's it's like if you could pair him with a great screen director, like man, I mean, sorry, screenwriter, like and, and pair him that him as a director with, with a good screenwriter. It's like Jesus. I, I, nope. I can't imagine. The problem with those movies, though, and I feel like we talked about this at some point last year, is that you're talking about productions where they're filming multiple people that speak multiple languages in their native language and then dubbing back right into whatever language it's in. So a lot of what you're seeing just feels stilted or weird because you're not actually getting the the actor, you know, right. speaking their lines or whatever. You're having somebody... right like sort of dub through or go back and you know someone who's not as talented or whatever it's not you know yeah no, it's and that's the difficult thing about a lot of horror from the 70s and 80s because a lot of it is foreign mm-hmm. and it's not like they were considering you know what's the lasting ramifications of trying <laughs> right. to save a buck here it's just mm-hmm. let's get this shit filmed and that's one of the reasons why I love Argento so much because he's so distinctive visually. And I feel the same way about Fulci, honestly, because they're so recognizable in their own styles that 
you can sometimes just forgive how bad dialogue and um, delivery is because it's so interesting to look at. So, mm-hmm. or at least for me, and you know that I'm a, I'm always going to be a sucker for the way things look. Sure. So, so I have one last question about this movie for you. Is this, in in your knowledge, one of the first times you have? Not to spoil things, but it's like it's whatever, fifty years old or something. Um, that you have a female killer. Like, is this radical? I mean, in that regard? I mean, Repulsion had a female killer, and that's what, a couple years before this? Mm -hmm. I seem to think there is a couple other... That's a psychodrama, though, like, to some degree. Like, I mean, it's it's a little bit different to me. I mean, Argento would go back to the female killer pretty frequently. Like, he was Mm -hmm. very big on the idea of the the empowered woman who had her own agency to... To kill, um, and you'll see it in some giallo, um, or at least it's a woman that's killing because she's in love with a man that wants her to kill her, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. Yeah. sort of like the more cheap, um, cop out way of doing it, but here, yeah, it, it might be, yeah, I don't know. I was just wondering, it was, it was surprising to me, like, I, I didn't expect it necessarily, um. All right, move on to another Italian here. So number two on your list is Hatchet for the Honeymoon. It is directed by Mario Bava, stars Stephen Forsyth, Dagmar Lazender, and Laura Betty. It has a 57% from critics and a 49% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's number two on the list? Uh, This is sort of Bava kind of a take very loose take on something like um the telltale heart or the black cat um which is the idea of there's a guy who wants to rid himself of his wife um again this is armchair psychology where the guy is murderous because he used to watch his mother get fucked by his stepdad um Although you find that out over the course of the movie, which is, I guess, I just spoiled. Like, whatever. Yeah, anyway. Um, I I refuse to believe that any movie in the 1970s that we talk about is... It's just like a forever spoiler warning. I just meant because I wanted to explain the movie a little differently, and I fucked up because I'm just, like, telling you. Gotcha. Um, So you watch the development of him kind of trying to remember his memory. So the way he jogs his memory is by murdering beautiful young women. Um, he owns a uh, fashion house that specializes in bridal gowns, uh, but he's financially supported by his wife, um, who's just an asshole kind of, but really just wants to get laid and can't get laid because her husband won't have sex with her. Um, so he ends up murdering a bunch of people. He ends up murdering his wife. After he murders his wife, her spirit starts following him around. Um, that everybody can see her spirit except for him until um, I guess like after she's already embarrassed him by kind of I don't know anyway so everybody else can see her and interact with her and bring her drinks and shit like that but he can't really Um, which is to me like the more like the telltale hard thing you know the guilt of like the murders kind of culminating and driving him crazy Um, eventually he murders the wrong woman um, and gets caught 
uh, and is being taken away with you know, the spirit of his wife still with him, sort of illustrating that he's, you know, being punished for his crimes, uh, I don't know, spiritually or morally or whatever, by being haunted by this ghost. Um, it's one of the weaker Bava movies from the 70s. Um, I shouldn't even say it like that. It's the, the production was plagued with issues and most of the people that worked on it weren't happy and Bava was running out of money consistently. But you still see a lot of the things that make him great, uh, which is the way that he, I call it like the Bava quick take or um, spit take almost, which is something happens and Bava will show someone turning their head towards the camera to sort of illustrate confusion or dismay. Um, and he's really big on doing that where he films someone like a medium shot from afar and then kind of like focuses in to show their head like snap around or whatever um and it's filmed on some fucking i guess french villa or italian villa that's just beautiful to look at um i mean kind of a goofy movie in a lot of ways and once it gets into the supernatural element of him being haunted um it shifts a lot from being traditional just like a crime almost serial killer movie to being this weird pseudo ghost story and imitated later in a lot of ways by uh, Argento for his um, his segment of two evil eyes. Um, hmm. Hmm. I never thought of that. I mean, it's the same idea mostly. Sure. sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, is it like a perfect movie? No, but Bob is one of the more important directors of um, the 60s and 70s in terms of Italian art and really was a guy that was innovative in terms of his visual style and sort of invented a lot of tropes of modern horror. Um, one of the first people to really introduce the idea of like the ghost, the ghost child that's like haunting someone and um, just as some really fantastic movies. And is one of the guys that's kind of like to your question in the beginning about the the sick horror in the sixties is he's one of the bigger forces of transition from that old style to a more modern style of uh, filmmaking in terms of horror movies. So this is a movie I also loved when I was little. <sighs> Sorry, been a long life. Um, <laughs> a movie I loved when I was little, so I really wanted to put it on the list and talk about it and yeah i think it's free on youtube right now yeah it is this this was my second favorite movie on this list like i it feels like felt like i mean it feels like like with the both argento and baba you're including them because they're so important like to some degree like these are are lesser movies you've you know kind of noted for both of them but it's like again compared to the other things like i thought this had a really good sense of humor to it like like a dark sense of humor and i i thought it was really enjoyable throughout like it had me laugh like a number of times like um uh all i think intentionally and right and uh yeah i i thought like i don't know i just i thought it was really funny actually like it was almost like a horror comedy type thing really i mean i don't want you to get me wrong i don't think that i like 
bird with crystal plumage and hatchet for the honeymoon a lot um and i wouldn't have put them on a list if they weren't you know like pretty dear to me in terms of from a nostalgia perspective and just from an enjoyment perspective i'm just saying that when you look at their overall filmography these are more footnotes to that filmography rather than like standout features and i I just think in 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 the context of how important is bird with crystal plumage you know i i think it's pretty important for what comes after it but i also think that the stuff that comes after it is more enjoyable especially from argento as he kind of finds his voice and again there's a couple movies we're going to talk about in this decade that will be able to sort of expound expand on that idea more okay um, and with Baba, I just think that, again, he's another guy that he did some really important films. And I think there is some things in Hatcher for the Honeymoon that will really come into play later with other, um, you know, killer slasher horror movies, especially incorporating that um, Poeian, if that's a word, mm-hmm. element into it that Poe was really big on in stuff like the Telltale Heart. Um, and infusing it with that very specifically 70s italian look in terms of the men and the dress and you know just the attitude of the era so yeah i'm certainly not that familiar with baba at all like i'm looking at his other 70s movies and i've only seen one of them which was bay of blood and um like you know how i feel about that movie Uh, so i i i enjoy this much more (laughs) than that movie um overall but again i'm not a fan of slasher type stuff usually like it depends but um yeah i i don't yeah i really like this movie i, I enjoyed it I, I think i like watched it all without stopping pretty much like you know um i don't think i stopped once like watching it which is, yeah, this odd is for me. i mean it's really towards the end of baba's like meaningful career because mm. you get on bay of blood you get um uh, what is it? Five dolls for an August moon and uh, barren blood in the same decade. And then his health sort of starts to deteriorate because mm-hmm. he was active for like three or four decades. Um, but again, this is him being that transitional force, I think, into what becomes modern Giallo and then what eventually becomes the modern horror film. So. Right. Right. All right. That makes more sense. Okay. Yes, the number one movie on your list is Cry of the Banshee, directed by Gordon Hessler. Stars Vincent Price, Elizabeth Bergner, and Patrick Mower. It is no rating from critics and a 41% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So um, uh, tell us a little about this movie and why it was the number one most enjoyable for you. I am a huge, and we talked about this when we were talking about vampire lovers. I'm a huge sucker for the British period piece horror movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love Vincent Price. I think that it's impossible to understate how important Price, Cushing, and Lee are to horror films um british horror films and otherwise you know throughout the 60s and 70s uh this is price playing one of his best roles as a villain 
um, a witch finder who is the governor of this uh, village or whatever that uses his influence to basically steal and rape and do whatever he wants to the um, the poor working class citizens of the place that he's supposed to protect. Um, it's a role that he does similarly in the 1968, I think, uh, Witchfinder General or Conqueror Worm, as is otherwise known. Um, but really chewing scenery and like hamming it up here uh which is because price is such a great actor is always in my opinion an incredible amount of fun to watch um the basic story is so this guy he's an asshole his family are assholes they sort of rule with fear and use the idea of accusing someone of witchcraft as a way to coerce them to do whatever they want um Outside the village, there's this group of pagan druids, almost, that uh, run afoul of Price and then start to use their druidic powers to basically fuck him over and curse his family. Um, and that's what happens, you know, like bit by bit, his family gets murdered and um, all for being dickheads, basically, so sort of deserved but then it moves into his family that's more innocent, like his wife and his daughter and his other younger son. Um, and the workings are done through this guy who's just kind of this laid back dude that lives in the village that's in love with uh, Price's daughter, um, who the druid, witch, priestess, whatever, turns into a fucking um, hound of the Baskervilles, basically, and has him go out and murder all these people. Um I don't know, man, like, I can completely understand your point when it comes to just the feel of these movies, but I'm, I will always love just the look of the colonial era village, and I love these classic actors, like, it's it's so good for me to watch, you know, Vincent Price act in a movie, or Peter Cushing or um, Ingrid Pitt or, you know, later Christopher Lee, who we don't talk about this month. And I think there's a real, I'm, I'm a fan of like that classic sensibility that's told in a more modern style. So, you know, you have the church is not necessarily portrayed as um, altruistic or heroic here. You know, there's people abusing their power and, men who were abusing their agency over women to basically get what they want and i think in the modern era like there's still movies that could be made today to bring light to those ideas that people are afraid to make and seeing it done in you know 1970 is always like kind of a breath of fresh air that these people could put some weighty you know moral and societal issues into a movie and hide it behind the mantle of a horror movie um and I think that this movie does that really well. I would say, though, that if you have the chance, watch Witchfinder General instead of this. If you're going to watch one, uh, Vincent Price is an asshole abusing his power to accuse people of being witches. Um, Witchfinder General is a better movie, but I still think this movie is really good. And I like the twist ending where, you know, basically they get their comeuppance and there's justice for... Um, for the village and for the families that were affected by his like cruel 
leadership. Yeah, I, I, I think what you're saying about the church stuff is like, I'm not particularly keen on. And look, I I didn't hate this movie. I just was like blah about this movie. They just they just don't make me. They just don't interest me. And I think it's I think it's the witch. I think witch stuff. Like I think the setting is the first thing. You're right. Like this like kind of old school like colonial type setting like this village-like setting for some reason irks me i don't like it i don't think it's interesting to look at like most of the time and then it's like i think the witch stuff and like you said the church stuff it's like i get it i guess but it's like i find like the church is the church is hypocritical like look at how they like actually ruin these people's lives like you know through like their bullshit i I just don't find it that interesting like it's like duh to me when i'm watching it and i maybe i understand that it's revolutionary for the time and it's like but look it's like we're going to talk about a movie next month that i've watched recently where i think it's fascinating as hell because something interesting is done with it and i would i would say it's like almost like my my like kind of like being nonplussed about these type of movies is very similar to what we're going to deal with two years ago in the 80s with slasher movies is like if the slasher movies done really well and bring something new and interesting to it and god i can never remember the name of it what is the horrific one out in the woods like out in the middle of nowhere where the girl is like taken in by like kidnapped by the family and she has to fight back against them and it has the awful ending with the ridiculous like person coming out of the woods like, oh, uh, Mother's Day. Mother's Day. It's like, I don't like those kind of movies that much, but like Mother's Day did something different. Like it it pushed some sort of boundary and that's why I liked it. Like it was terrible. It was awful. It was disgusting almost like the, the torture that they were like putting her through. And it felt very, yes, exploitative, but very feminist in her like kind of coming back and like making a choice to like take these people down and like so it's did something slightly different with it it's like halloween is so meticulously crafted that like you know and and so suspenseful and does so many brilliant things the more i watch that movie it's like i can i'm fine with that but when it just gets into the standard tropes and this i don't know these a lot of these movies just feel like the standard tropes Next month is a different story, but I think it does. It pushes boundaries. It does something different with it in terms of the church and all that kind of stuff is what I would say. And so I understand what you're saying, 100%. Yeah. And here's th- this is why I look at it. Like you can sit there and watch, you know, the Fox Noir collection mm-hmm. and at least like appreciate or enjoy most of those movies. I have a lot of trouble watching anything but like the best noir movies. You know gotcha. what I mean? And yeah. not, not that I don't dislike them, but I just get really bored because it's just not my bag, you know? Whereas yeah. in horror, it's the opposite where like I can watch a shitty horror movie and really find a lot to take from it because it's just the genre that I happen to love. Sure. But I can, I also recognize what you're saying. And I'm not saying that Cry of the Banshee does anything revolutionary. Um, because there are other movies around this time and to your point one we're going to talk about next month that do take 
a lot of elements that would have been considered taboo prior to this era and just do some crazy things with them. But I would argue that that movie next month isn't as much a condemnation of the church as it is a condemnation of agreed, agreed, yes, other things yes. basically that we'll we'll, we'll talk about when agreed. we get there. Yeah, I agree with that. Where and honestly, friggin' Cry of the Banshee isn't condemning the church. Cry of the Banshee is an exploitation movie that's using the church as a villain because it's shocking and titillating and evokes a reaction from you you know like if you're some poor working class british person who or whatever poor working class person has you know got a dollar in your pocket to get a ticket to go see this movie and you always feel like people are like aligned against you or whatever this is the way of subtly connecting with you so that you enjoy the movie more you know it's basically like revenge fantasy for the viewer but i also think that it's pretty beautifully filmed um i really enjoy price's performance in it like i said um and i think it's a i i'm a sucker for those stories like i like the the nobles sort of getting their comeuppance for oppressing um the working class through some supernatural means which is what you know happens here and and again it's kind of a combination of like the hound of the baskervilles with earlier movies of his so Witchfinder general it's you know very similar to that and um I, but i don't know i can never get enough of vincent price like i love vincent price one of my favorite actors probably of all time definitely yeah. of all time so um <clears throat> i think I think my stuff was 70s in general. Just to get that out of the way is, and, and this is maybe, I don't know, maybe it's wrong head above me. It's like, I think about my favorite horror movies of all time. And that includes a couple of movies from the 70s here. They make me feel something. And some of, the, some of those things they make me feel are some sort of dread, some, some sort of discomfort, like, you know, some of those things. And I think part of why I was not keen on the 70s is they wouldn't make me feel anything. And like, I don't think I felt anything during any of these movies, like watching them. I enjoyed some of them, but I don't think I felt anything from them. Like, so, and it's like when I'm, when I'm watching a horror movie, I'm looking to be discomfited in some way. Like, whether that's, whatever psychologically metaphysically viscerally like you know i'm looking to like have a feeling related to it and like i think that's why i was so hesitant about the 70s is that like i didn't feel i was going to get that from a lot of these movies and so far that's true but it doesn't mean i haven't enjoyed some of these movies even though like i haven't gotten that horror feeling yet from any um and so, I mean, that's what that's, I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping for out of all of this. Honestly, is that like so a lot of these movies I haven't seen? And I'm hoping to like having seen them for the first time to, to to recapture that feeling that I think largely escapes us now a lot of times um, because we're older, because we're 
we've seen more we're more cynical like you know i mean i'll never be able to go back up all night or seeing certain movies for the first time like texas chainsaw or the shining right. like ever again although the shining still discomforts me like every single time i see it and texas chainsaw to some degree as well but um but i'm hoping for that feeling again like out of some of these movies Hopefully. well i'm pretty sure that you you must have gotten at least some of that in the movie next month yeah um, a little bit moment and i don't know i mean this is horror that's meant to entertain it's really just meant to titillate but i still think that there's value in that and Mm -hmm. i think that again like as we move into the 70s and you see some more avant-garde ideas in terms of the filmmaking and some more daring in terms of the risks that these directors are willing to take i i yeah i i think you see a lot of what propels film forward not just in the horror genre but other genres too um into the 80s and even into like the 90s in the modern day because a lot of the things that are established here are still widely used in modern filmmaking so yeah oh yeah uh sure i find that infinitely fascinating of like how this has evolved over time and spread you know and influenced and all those kind of things like i mean i i find that fascinating um because just even reading about argento and then watching the documentary i watched last night and like you know reading some more today it's like there's a direct link from the movie that we were talking about tonight with him to the reason that basically like a lot of the shit in the 80s exists in america <laughs> like it wouldn't right. exist without that like and it's like every single extended jason scene of kind of like torture kill is is because of that <laughs> it feels like and i really like i'm always going to take again the opportunity to highlight movies with lee and cushing and price because i think that they're important and then i just like to talk about them and i'd like hopefully somebody to say like hey that sounds like a movie i might want to watch and pick it up and just enjoy you know these classic performances by some men that were pillars in the in the genre so yeah that's cool should i probably look forward to the christopher lee movies i probably owe my entire love of horror to vincent price in a lot of ways yeah um thriller and whatever you know there's a lot of things that i saw Mm. price in or price was a part of in my childhood that really kind of pushed me in that direction of wanting to watch horror and yeah um trying to was am i just misremembering this was he in gunga din in a small role like comedic role or am i misremembering that vincent price yeah god i don't know i've seen gunga did in 752 years <sighs> thinking of real quick and i'll stop this um no he is not i'm thinking of somebody else um i have no idea who i'm thinking of weird all right Maybe it's another different movie I'm thinking of. Um, he's in Laura, though. I know, though. Anyway, so I loved watching all five of these movies again. 
this month i'm really looking forward to next month's movies already i've already watched a couple so yeah there's two of them that i really like a lot um out of that month um definitely actually three that i really like a lot of that month yeah but um yeah no it's it's interesting so far i'm getting ready to probably start 72 here in another week or two just to kind of get ahead and um yeah no i'm 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 interested in the rest of this year with these movies so cool so all right well um what do we got coming up uh we'll be on a break next week for two guys five movies we will keep continuing to do the spin chagrin though this coming week frank will talk about a movie that he has not seen but that traumatized him from his time working at regal cinemas <laughs> and i picked a I, I picked a real winner <laughs> yeah. yeah and and then you can also catch the sister podcast uh, as uh just came up uh this week was creepy encounters so with our friends uh mike butso and orion wallmaker and then we will be recording next week so we'll have a couple episodes coming out of that next month as well uh we'll be back in two weeks on the primary podcast with the top five comedies of the 1990s and we'll go from there so thanks for listening and thanks for all of our new listeners it seems have a good night deuces